G'day everyone, welcome to Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host Tiffany Cook and today's conversation is actually a co-share because recently I had a wonderful guest on Roll With The Punches podcast. His name is Sandy Macquarie and he is a career paramedic and flight paramedic or former career and flight paramedic should I say who has just spent quite a few years doing his PhD and researching around paramedics and how the job affects health stats and how health stats affect the job. It is a fascinating conversation and I thought that it was really relevant. Well, I thought that it was really relevant to everybody, but I thought it was really relevant to the listeners of the Code 9 Foundation. So here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Sandy Macquarie, welcome to Roll With The Punches. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you in sunny Queensland? It's always sunny in Queensland. It's pretty It's pretty darn awesome up here. I was a few years in Bathurst and I thought there must be some place that's got better weather. And uh, <laughs> wow, did I ever strike it here? Mm, I am a bit stubborn because I love Melbourne and refuse to move to Queensland, but I also do not tolerate the cold very well. And it's just, we've just, it's we've been really lucky. I feel like this year is really lucky because it's just, it's May today and it's only just gotten cold as I sit here in my singlet top with the heater on. So what sort of troublemaker I am. Whinging about the cold with the heater on and wearing summer clothes. (laughs) And people say to me, but you're a Canadian, you can take the cold. And I said, I respect the cold. I don't have to take it. I respect it. Because where I'm from, the cold can be life-threatening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm from Tassie, so I get people saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, oh, you're from Tassie. You should be used to the cold. And I want to punch them in the face. I'm a boxer, so I'm allowed to punch people in the face, Sandy. Absolutely. <laughs> but Or I'm allowed to want to. I'm not allowed to punch them in the face. But I have this theory. I remember it was it was August in 2003 when I moved to Melbourne. When in August, mid August, and I remember walking up in the mornings, walking to a tram with this double-breasted thick coat on, and I was just freezing. And I remember that. And every time someone tries to tell me that Tasmania is colder, I'm like, mm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not down mm. with this. And plus. Tassie also doesn't go, hey, here you go, have 40 degrees for six months and then have minus 20, you know, like it's a big (laughs) swing. I can't climatize to it. (laughs) It's true. It is true. Yeah. But now I sound super whingy, so I'll pretend that I'm happy in any weather. And let's talk about you because you do some cool stuff. You contacted me listening to the potty Mm. the other day. You contacted me and told me a bit about what you're doing. I was like, oh, you are my jam. This is the stuff I, I love. Speaking of people, I love your kind, which is a career paramedic, um, but you've also done some PhD, PhD research in a particular area. It is my jam, and I can't wait to talk about it, but give us a little overview. Who's Sandy? Mm, yeah, so obviously from the accent, you can tell I'm from Canada. been in Australia for 10 years, but my my career across paramedicine is uh, 30 years, almost 31 now, uh, about half kind of frontline, half in, in management, teaching and other but I, and then I still work as a paramedic and I was, I worked everywhere as a paramedic. I did ground, I did flight, I did helicopter, I did senior management, I did teaching, bounced around in a boat in the middle of the Atlantic. And across that time I had some wonderful experiences, 
which was great. Got a lot of stuff done. Came to Australia to teach because you teach paramedics in universities over here, which is spectacular. But um, there is an admission probably at least 10 years ago that I was quite unwell. As a, in a, And I'm telling you, I was quite unwell. Uh, through large portions of my career, I didn't cope well. I internalized stress. I had maladaptive behaviors, and that's just code for saying I did things you're not supposed to do. And I survived it. Uh, but came, you know, 10 years ago, there was this crossroads in my life. And I said, I'm going to go down a different path. And it, the path started with trying to look after myself. And I did. And I had a clean break from this, you know, my world in Canada came here. And uh, they, they were trying to sweeten the pot to get me over here. And they said, well, yeah, you can do a PhD too, Sandy. Now, I don't even know what that means. Man, what's it stand for? But I said, I'll, I said, I'll sign up for it. And I won't, I'll actually tell everybody I'm doing it, but I won't actually finish it. Because it's hard. <laughs> this is a true story, but the fire was lit, Tiffany, and that was, can I figure out where I deviated from the path? Me, myself. Can I help others? Can I help predict things? Can I make things better for paramedics? And that was my target audience. So I said, I'll design a research question, and I will do a PhD on the health of paramedics. And I did. Uh, it started, you know, PhD in PhD world, you started with a question and then about five or six years later, you've totally changed. And my, <laughs> my, mine did the same thing. My original question was, does fatigue make you a worse paramedic means in others? Does it affect your decisions, you know, choices, things like that. And, uh, designed experiments and I got funding and I did cool stuff with what you'll learn to be, uh, I'll talk about the hexoskin biometric shirts. And then I started to understand the work, the flow, the temporal flow of paramedics has, was never really defined. If you did a block of shifts, you can expect to do this many calls over this period of time with this much change in your heart rate, with this much change in your blood pressure, and then you're going to walk this many steps, and you're going to burn this much, this many calories. No one had really done that over a long period of time. So I said, I need to go down that rabbit hole. So I... I uh, recruited a whole bunch of paramedics from New South Wales Ambulance, spectacular organization to do research with. And we followed them over about a six-month period, and we watched them, and we got all their call information. Tiffany, over that period of time, this group of paramedics did a 1,000 calls, and they worked 2,500 hours. That's how much I monitored them for. They gave up all their health information, all their call information, what kind of calls they did, how much time they spent, how many cardiac arrests they did. And I, I, I was at the cusp of something I thought was pretty cool. So we had about 15 variables. A variable is something you want to study to see if it has an effect. Age, gender, posting, type of call, how many years experience, level of care that they gave. I think about 15. Mm -hmm. And built a kind of big, it's called a linear mix model. Yeah. This is a guy who didn't know what PhD stood for. And mm -hmm. in the end, we found some really cool stuff. We also uh, did a, a measure of cardiorespiratory fitness on, and you know what, it, it's VO2 max, did the multi-stage shuttle and went back to the to the, the call data and we found out some incredible things about paramedics and a bit of a predictive model to say, if these things are in play, you might expect these things to happen. So I boil it down. I'm getting to the end now. I boil it down by saying I had two questions to answer. The first is, does being a paramedic 
affect your health status? That's number one. And the second question is, does health status affect being a paramedic? And the answer to both was yes. Mm. So there, that's the teaser. That was, and that's six years of work to get to that point. Uh, yeah. I love this. We're going to have so much to unpack. I worked yeah. with, when we went into lockdown or prior to lockdown, I'd worked, um, I'd done some boot camps with the Victorian Ambulance Paramedics here. And when we went into lockdown, one of my good friends who's a paramedic who heads up the health and wellness hub here, she reached out in the middle of COVID and said, um, we're going to create an opportunity for you to run the wellness program whilst we're in lockdown. So I was logging in over Zoom and every day and just giving them well, a, a physical outlet, but also a sense of connection and community. And it was an amazing opportunity. And it was a really interesting time for me. And it was a time that sparked enormous amount of both passion for paramedics and what they do, but also curiosity. And so I just started this podcast and actually I started the podcast as a result of working with the paramedics and, a, and an amalgamation of things happened at that time. So I'd started having deep and meaningful conversations about my own life and trauma and putting a lot of things together and my boxing background. I'd worked with the paramedics and I'd seen them. And then in the same year, I'd studied epigenetics. And at my question at that time was I kind of went, is is there an epigenetic health type? Is there data Mm. here that – so our paramedics – a certain health type? Are they a certain biological makeup? Is there a personality type and a biology that is drawn to that profession? And is that biology the same? Does that have a propensity to suffer mental health or is there a reason, is there alignment there as to why there are so many um, mental health challenges and suicides in the industry? Mm. Or thinking about my own kind of journey with trauma and seeking solace in the, this stressful environment of the boxing ring and feeling at home there. I was like, do, do paramedics have a known or unknown, a conscious or unconscious trauma history that makes them drawn to other people's trauma? Because I was like, why well, they're going out into these places of trauma and, and in that place, much like me for 29 years, you're learning as a profession, you're learning to switch off your normal human emotions to things. You can't walk into a stressful, traumatic environment and and feel. So you learn to dissociate and then you can't just clock off at whatever time and turn that back on. So I had big questions there, so I'd love you to talk about that. But I just want to know what you first all of my questions aside, what did you learn that you didn't expect to? Uh, that I could do research. I served my apprenticeship into research. And then I, I like light bulbs were going off all over the place. As I mm. got to the end, I had like three years of data collection, which was phenomenal. And then I had to write up. And if you're talking about it, I've done a PhD. The writing up part is like, it's like torture. Oh. It took me a year. Oh. So I realized I was in, in, for the long term at that point, um, the light bulbs were all going off. So I had this massive, massive data set and we started to build predictive models of what would swing, what would change physiology. And I'll speak to the parameters I was managing, were, uh, looking at were heart rate and heart rate change, respiratory rate change, G-force production, 
energy burn, um, and then kind of all the other variables that we had talked about. Oh, sorry, blood pressure and, and self-report of fatigue. At the end of the time, at the end of the time of data collection, we saw things that would move your physiology up. And that's a normal thing. That's, you know, fight or flight, that's autonomic nervous system. But but a lot of things were not letting it come back down. Mm. Now, this is really important. Mm. The parts that were not letting it come back down, there was an effect of gender. There was an effect of where you worked. So if you were working in the rural area as a paramedic, you your physiology took longer to return to a, what I call a shift baseline start than anywhere else. I know. Wow. Call type, call type certainly did, but it was equal between Metro and and, and the regional paramedics. Uh, BMI, VO2 max, Ooh. waist to height ratio, and you know where I'm going with this. Oh yeah. As we started to look in, so here's the here's the take home point: your health status obviously affects your physiologic response. But we were seeing two par- two kinds of paramedics. Higher health status, lower health status, same call, same call, shortness of breath, whatever it happens to be. They're in the crew room afterwards for a long period of time, and they don't even know each other. They're at different ends of the state. Mm. One one returns to their pre-shift baseline, and the other does not. So the other one is still, so a high BMI and resulting high blood pressure, high, you know, really low VO2 max, cardiorespiratory fitness. And they're tacking along, sitting in the case room afterwards, and it doesn't return. So I was really, we're physiologically, we're adapted to go up, but we need to come back down. So those folks weren't coming back down and the variables that were affecting them that we hit out of all the 15 were kind of those big ones, where they were, their gender, and call type really didn't matter. They, everybody, uh, age and experience, the, the, I had a saying it is, and it is um, older paramedics are cool. So they seem to have, the, like you said, this ability to either dissociate or get back into the groove and return to their normal physiology faster mm-hmm. than that. But we found out a whole bunch of things about what paramedics did. And if you worked in a metro, we could expect, you know, out of the you know 500 calls that we looked at, that you do X number of calls per shift. So really, we're starting to define it. You would take this many steps, you would drive this many kilometers, you would do this many patient contacts, you would do this many patient transports. And we did the same thing for the regional paramedics, too. So we're starting to build this picture of the temporal flow of paramedic work. And we asked them a lot of questions. We asked, actually, the whole the whole staff. At that time, there was about 3,500 paramedics. And we did a health status survey, and we published this. And I should have known I did it first before I did the second study on, on biometric monitoring. But the, the regional people said, you know what, Sandy? Like, we can't exercise. We can't exercise out here. We're in a town with one street and there's no snap fitness and I'm off shift and I've got a killer shift and I've had shift overrun. Uh, there's not enough or, There's not enough team sports around us. There's not enough time for us. This, this schedule is really hard on us. We're fatigued at the end of the day. Uh, the, the metro people would say the same thing, but they had access to service. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really important because now I'm such a big health status I'm going to say fan, proponent. I know it's dull to talk about, but if you shift your health status or work towards getting your health status and whatever measures you want, uh, you'll put yourself in a better position to handle the next bad call or the next shift overrun, things like that. Um, I think it's really interesting you talk about the epigenetics and there's a there's a researcher at QUT, uh, Divya uh, Mehta, 
who is studying the epigenetics of paramedic students on placement, uh, wow. gene expression, gene expression. She'd be a good guest. Ooh, yeah. Some preliminary work, and I won't talk about her work necessarily here because it's it's a study on its own. But I I'm switched on to that. She looked at post-traumatic stress uh, gene and post-traumatic growth genes switching on and off in paramedic students during their during placement. Anyway, let's get back to health status. So at, I'm at the tail end of this PhD. I presented all my findings to the CEO and, and all the senior managers. Uh, we published it, published the PhD, and kind of s- that has set the stage for me to say, all right, we looked at that. We know health status plays a big part in, in being a paramedic, and being a paramedic seems to affect your health status. You know, the, you know, the ones in the regional paramedics had a higher BMI than the uh, metro paramedics, and had a higher BMI than the Australian population in when we surveyed them in 2015. So I think, and, and our population, and I'll just say it at we, because I'm a paramedic, but our population is a young population. You may see this in Ambulance Victoria, but there's been massive hiring over the last number of years. And there's paramedics that, that have exited early. Those, those, they, those data are kind of unclear, but compared to police, and fire and nursing who have a large percentage of their population almost ready to retire we're different we are different so we've got a a larger percentage that are not ready to retire they're young but you talked about it earlier and that's the the mental health claims uh the physical body stressing claims for a young population Mm. are high they're really high which means I think they're only going to get worse as they kind of go through their career. So that's why I research. Oh, your research is so crucial and I'm so excited to speak to you about it. I've, you know, like things make sense, but until information is processed and delivered in, in the right context, it, it really doesn't, it can't land with people. You know, the amount of, conversations I've had on resilience and mental health and Mm. physical health and what we do and how we process it and how we think and how our perception, our perception of stress and our perception of life and what we're going through, have all of these conversations, right? But wrapping it up in the paramedic research bow that you just did makes it sound so different. It makes it sound like something completely new because it's so contextual to the lives that people are living. And then you just go, well, of course. Like, of course, this all makes so much sense. <laughs> but it takes six years of PhD research. <laughs> oh, so uh, especially that last year. That last year was very, very hard because uh, <clears throat> I'm not a scientific writer. I am not good like that. But I had a wonderful supervisory team. But what was happening at the same time, it's not a perfect storm, but people were ready for this information. I had, uh, and, and I'm not going to say ambulance services are notorious for not studying themselves, because I think they do, but they don't do it readily. But New South Wales Ambulance did. And when I arrived and I met them in 2013, 2014, I didn't count my chances high of getting in and having the keys to the castle, but I got them. Mm-hmm. And they... They were a research partner and they said, how can we help you with your with all of your studies? And they did. And they were also ready at the other end. 
they were ready to hear what I had to say. And some of it was not fun to say, you know, the BMI of your ambulance population is higher than the Australian population. Yeah. You know, when, when you stratify it, um, but they listened, like they really listened and we went on to do more work with them, uh, with another, with the research team. And we wanted to look at, uh, physical capacity of New South Wales ambulance paramedics. And we did, uh, we wanted to look at the effect of putting in like a gym into New South Wales ambulance stations. And we did, uh, and they, they took it all on board. So it was really good. We did uh, some big trials with them. And, you know, even as they, I just wrapped up an evaluation of all of their health and fitness programs, they, they invited me back to have a look at them for everything that they put in after I, I presented to them. Uh, and it's on their CEO's test. So we'll just kind of leave it at that one. But we're hoping from that, that there'd be another round of targeted research so we could do some interventions, right? And, you know, think of all the, the Rolodex in your head. If you could intervene and say, what are we going to do today to make these people healthier? Would we work on nutrition? Would we work on fatigue management? Would we work on on work work home balance Those, or all of them? So I'm, I'm pretty uh, optimistic that we'll get something going in the next probably 12 months or so. Do you know what else I reckon makes this uh, more difficult for people like yourself to you know get everything off the ground is the idea that the personality types that are going into this career, like yourself, and then the conditioning and lives that you live in the middle of that career mm. is very much serving everybody else first. You know, it struck me. It was one of the first things that struck me is like, you guys always come last. You're helping every. You have this real um, nurturing personality type that is look after everybody else, and then you know your shift workers, your sleep doesn't matter, your schedule doesn't matter. Like ever, you just you go from one trauma to the next, and you serve and you serve and you look after everybody else, and then you go home and you you know do what you can and you turn up again the next day, and it's it's a big shift to go. Hey. I actually matter for my health matters. For, it's like trying to tell mums to look like your health matters. You're better mum when you look after you, when you have time for you. And it's same with paramedics. You're better paramedic when you look after you first. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I was, I was this, I was the, not the victim or I was, I exhibited all those behaviors. And at the same time I had this, like this incessant yearning to be the best paramedic I could be. So yeah. what's next? What training can I take? What what job can I get? What ways can I become that next level, right? And on, before you know it, you're not in a helicopter and you're landing in someone's backyard and, you know, you're thinking, but you're right, but but I paid a price for that. Yeah. I'm, te- I'm telling you, you know, personally, probably professionally, but personally I did. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did you claw, what, what, was your, what were your steps for clawing your own health and wellness back? Where did you start and how long was that process for you? And that would, like, did that happen simultaneously with your research or did you have to spend a bit of time on yourself first? Oh, it was me first. Yeah, it yeah. was me first. I had uh, always, as an adult, I was, I was paramedic, but also volunteer firefighter. If you're familiar with a competition called the Firefighter Combat Challenge, runs in North America, runs in New Zealand, runs in Canada. And I picked it up in 97 and it became a goal for me to become healthy because I was kind of, you know, physically unwell. 
So trained for it really hard, got really good at it, ran ran it a whole bunch of years. In fact, I last ran it in 2017 in, in Britain. But it, I was a, I was this, the, word not, the word's not dichotomy, but I was two people. I was two people. I was, I'd say, physically incredibly fit, high VO2 max, very strong, could CrossFit, you know, all that sort of stuff. I was doing CrossFit in 2005 when there was 40 people on the website. Uh, but on the other hand, incredibly stressed. It took its mm-hmm. toll on my personal relationships. Uh, it, it drove me to do things like drink too much mm-hmm. uh, intermittently. And, you know, the whole thing about eating unwell and things like that, it would, it would be one seemed to buffer the other for a, a long period of time. Yes. But then it, but then it didn't. Yeah. And that was kind of 2010, 11, 12. And by 12, I said, mm, I'm I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I had this, this one side that's trying hard to save my life and the other side that's that's trying hard not to. Does that make mm. sense? This yeah. is me being really, really honest. Yeah. 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 It's it's such a place to get caught in. Um like you said, one thing feeds the other and we and we bounce around with this operating system, this subconscious operating system or even unconscious operating system that pushes us towards things that feel on some level like they're good for us and we can frame them as good for us and frame them as taking a break or relaxation when really we're just mm. putting more and more stress on the system. And, you know, if I haven't slept, my diet is like trying to rein in a bunch of four-year-olds in a lolly shop. It's like I wake up and I'm like, righto, let's sugar. It's like, no, let's not sugar. Like you've you've had next to no sleep. You've got a massive day. You've got all this stress on and you want to, and now you want to eat junk. And, you know, I can see why people go from that to then I've got to have a drink to switch off mm-hmm. or I've got to do, I'm just having, having, catching up with a friend. We went for coffee the other day after he trained. Now he's, his sleep, much like mine has been in life, horrific. His sleep is horrific, and I'm always saying you've got to you got to sleep better. And he, he does a lot of business. He's working two businesses at the moment, overworking, stressful life. I'm like, you got to you got to. And he, but he trains a lot. I'm like, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But you also got to recover. Mm-hmm. You got to rein in and, he, and partial to espresso martinis. But does never drank coffee in his life. Only if he ever has espresso martinis. Breakfast the other day, he orders a coffee. I'm like. You're drinking coffee. He's like, yeah, I've just started. I really like it. I, I go, what got you on to coffee after all this? Like he's going to turn 60 this year. He goes, I'm, well, I'm tired. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is the worst thing you could do. You're just starting to fix your sleep. Like, you know, you are, you are reaching into an empty bucket and digging the hole deeper. But that's what we do because it's like, oh, this coffee makes me feel really energetic. <laughs> True. Yeah. And then we crash. Yeah. Now, now, what is your aim? Okay, obviously, your aim with the research is to turn everything around. Are we are we convincing paramedics? Are we convincing organisations? Or what is the best approach? How do we get? Because I mean, we know it, but how do we get change? Really, how do we influence on that level? I think we need to understand, we need this kind of descriptive profile of what paramedics are. And I think now with my work and others, you get a cracking good research from Victoria by the name of Dr. Ben Meadley, um, is a star in this space. So and you, can call it, you can call him your own. 
but you need to do this descriptive profile. What does a paramedic do and what is what are the energy costs and what are the physiologic costs and, and things like that? So I think that's rolling along well. And you need to present it in such a way. I think in the last 20 minutes, I've explained six years of work and you're probably getting some of it. You're probably understanding, you know, this is. So I've been doing the same thing around the world. Mm-hmm. So describe describe the population. Now describe the problems. And they are fatigue and shift work and its its effects those two are crazy. Mm-hmm. The uh, the uh, issues with with vicarious trauma and certainly critical incident stress and maybe epigenetics plays a role in there too, gene expression. But get in front of the people that can make the decisions and convince them that you need to. It's, there's no no kind of quick fix here, and I call it but nudging the ship. My goal, if you want a spoiler alert, is to nudge health status in a positive direction. And we just got to figure out with this pocket, we're going to do this. And with this pocket, we're going to do this. And with this service, we're going to do this and then go for it and then study how interventions work. So post PhD, I'm really interested in stress and resilience. I'm starting to come on with resilience, but stress, understanding what stress is. And I use a psychophysiologic approach now. So I'll do self-report plus heart rate variability. Yeah. And in student populations, in police populations, in pharmacist populations, in I did a stress study on Chris Hemsworth for the show Limitless. So, yeah, yeah, so you'll when he does the, I don't know if you've seen the show, but when he does the the crane walk off the side of the Sydney Crown Hotel, I'm I'm hiding just below him, monitoring him in one of my biometric shirts. Boom. Yeah. So now, because you can come back with even more evidence. I mean, Mm. the, the rural paramedics who said, you know, we can't really exercise anywhere in our town or not enough time. Uh, New South Wales Ambulance installed gyms in their stations. In fact, they put a gym a gym in every station in New South Wales. 243 gyms and counting. So that was, yeah. So, and you know, gyms are, if you build it, they, they don't necessarily come like Field of Dreams. So there, <laughs> there, there needs to be this other great support that needs to come with. And I think they're working towards that. So that's a change. That was a change that, indirectly came from my research the um they do a a mandatory workplace wellness workshop for all now almost eight thousand of them and they're most of the way through their their first iteration and some of my data from my phd is part of day two so they're learning about what it's like to be a regional paramedic and what it's like to be a metro paramedic from a physiologic point of view so what comes out of it is the ability to nudge people in a direction that they could say, oh, I should be concerned about health status, number mm-hmm. one. And number two is, oh, if I did this, you know, if I, if I, you know, the odds ratios as your BMI, and BMI is not a great measure. People get very defensive about DMI, BMI when you say, and because I'm like a, I'd be a 27. <laughs> so, and I get it. Um, yeah. But people shut down, they go, oh, well, I'm overweight. That's the end of that conversation. God's ratios increase as you move through 27, 28, 29, and 30, and 31 BMI, you're going to get really sick. And that's a percentage of our population of firefighters and nurses and paramedics and obviously people in general. But these are these are emergency services occupations where you I say to to anyone, I know you don't have to be in shape to be a paramedic, but on the other hand, your next call, you might have to pick a heavy person off the floor, right? In cardiac arrest. So there's this kind of inherent, there has to be something invested in the paramedic provider. 
to support their health, to mm-hmm. identify their health needs and to address them. So if it's gyms, great. If it's nutrition, great. If it's fixing the fatigue through scheduling, that's more sensible, hiring more paramedics, getting them off work on time. Those are all things that are only now being imperfectly answered or addressed. Yeah. So it, it yeah. Feels, feels like it. A hard, it will be a hard thing to implement and regulate across the board. You know, how do we benchmark this? How do we, what What can we put in and what can we actually enforce? And also in the process of that, how many people are going to misinterpret what's going on and, and you know, have problems with how it's framed or how they are interpreting that it's framed and it's yeah. or. I use uh, I use hexoskin biometric shirts for for this monitoring very sophisticated piece of kit out of Canada, and I showed up at a station one time and I said, "Can you wear this? You know this to this paramedic? Can you wear this for the next few weeks?" And he said, "You're going to take all my data and you're going to give it to the CEO, aren't you?" And I said, <laughs> "I said absolutely." And he looked at me and he said, "Really?" And I said, "No." <laughs> I said, "No, no. We're going to de-identify everything, and we're really interested in you. We need to get your health better." And he said, and but we had a long conversation about it. And by the end of it, he said, not only am I going to do this, I'm going to go get some of my buddies to do this too. This is important. So you're right. It's the approach that you take, both at the at the at the at the you know that level, the the you know the coal phase, where they're providing uh, care every single day. But, but I want you to think, just pause for a moment as you go up the layers, and you start to look at mid-level management. How healthy are they? And the answer is probably not as healthy as they can be. I can guarantee that. Mm. And and you're further up the ladder and you look at around at these staff meetings or pictures of ambulance executives together. Man, they don't look really healthy. <laughs> so I'm thinking, yeah. wow. So it's not just because, the, you know, paramedics will, some will gravitate upwards. So we need this, this whole of operation approach that says it's not just the paramedics. It is those who support them. It's dispatchers. They put gyms in the dispatch centers as well. And it's about education with health specialists, with with uh, health and um, strength and conditioning coaches. It's with injury prevention specialists. I liken it to, I, I was deputy chief of the Ottawa Paramedic Service for a while. And I understood at that time, that would have been 2005, the, the cost of work cover and work cover claims. That, that's 2005. And I think at that time it was, you know, it would be in the probably top five line items of our budget. And it hasn't changed. In fact, it's probably moving up in Western ambulance services. So that means you've got a younger workforce. You've got, a, you've got an increase in year over year cost of work cover or insurance. Body stressing injuries is always to the forefront. But what's starting to nudge the mode in terms of cost per claim is you said it earlier, the mental health claims. They're very, and I'm not being callous to say they're very expensive. I'm really concerned. There's, uh, so you can use that to leverage change. And, and that's the conversations we have and we're having. And that is, if we can address um, one of your biggest line items and send it in a different direction with investment, you know, it's going to take money, it's going to take time, it's going to take researchers, then then let's have these conversations and we're having them both, you know, with the services I work with and, and certainly Amos Victoria has got a very proactive approach and they've got great researchers in Victoria as well. And now we're starting to look overseas as well in terms of how we can help, but it's, 
every chance I get, a, every time I get a chance to tell the story like this, in this setting, I take it. And if you know, I might be a little pushy to say, you know what, I really should be on your show, Tiffany, <laughs> and cross and cross my fingers. But it's another opportunity to be heard, you know, in a way that people can digest it. I mean, if I gave you all the papers I ever wrote, you'd go to sleep. It'd be great sleep aid. <laughs> it would go kill me now. Uh, so we have to put it in a way that's both palatable, understandable, and you can say. And some things I do didn't have a difference. Not all interventions work. I did a, a box breathing intervention with paramedic students before they did critical skills, square breathing, a bit of mindfulness. Uh, and the methodology wasn't really good, and we didn't see a difference. Wow. So not uh, well. Yeah, that's that's a um, that was one of my first experiments after I got out of PhD school. We've since gone back, and I have a big interest, big interest in performance breathing, tactical, you know, whatever you want to call it. My I call it mindful breathing with some centering and kind of addressing that side of things. And watching what happens in either prepping for or coming down regulating in general. Uh, we did a, a, a simulation immersiveness study and we put them into, into kind of two simulation environments, one kind of normal and the other kind of full on. And that's all I'll say. And we did a, a mindful breathing for one half and the other half not. And self-reports of anxiety and heart rate variability were way were significantly lower in the in the intervention group. And what we did differently was we embedded the mindfulness much earlier, like way well before we were ready to go. And and that learning curve was hitting its peak by the time we were ready to, to test them. So again, I, I lean on the, um, the hexo skins to do heart rate variability work. I'm really interested in heart rate variability. Really, really, really interested. It's gotten so good. The software is so good. The I can show you your own autonomic nervous system as it kind of goes back and forth. I can do it graphically, and it's it's um, it's pretty cool to watch. Uh, and that's not that's not heart rate change. That's heart rate variability, which are two different concepts. Yeah. So do you want to explain that to the listeners? I know what it is as an athlete. I'll watch mine, but do you want to? Can you explain that in simple terms for the listeners? Yeah, so heart rate variability would be a change in beats per minute, and that's how we measure it. So if you were you were sitting comfortably on the couch at sixty beats per minute, and you received a massive fright, and you had a big you know noradrenaline dump, and it, and all of a sudden you're sitting there and it's ninety five beats per minute, that's heart rate change. Yeah, uh, and eventually it'll come if the systems work, it'll come back into alignment. Heart rate variability between each ECG beat, if you think of that, you know the the television show where they have the monitor on the patient. Mm -hmm. They can put a little ruler between each each of the beats and measure it in milliseconds. And uh, as you you're a well conditioned athlete, so yours is actually varying right now. Your heart rate variability is every time you breathe out. But over time, you can see minute changes or big changes in the beat to beat distance, and they are closely associated with um, your autonomic nervous system the two divisions, sympathetic and parasympathetic, and how they're interplaying or opposing one another. So when you combine that with some psychologic measures, you get a pretty good proxy for stress. You get a pretty good proxy for a stress response, anxiety, things like that. So that's what it, and by the way, when we did Chris's, we did um, heart rate change when we, when they walked them off the, the building. Mm. I also, we did heart rate variability, which I thought was far more interesting, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to show it. So. <laughs> I think that it is 
so important in the instance we're speaking of because I come back to that idea of dissociation. Like we don't know when we're that stressed and we're in environments like paramedics are and we're under the physical, mental and emotional stress. There are so many different levels of physical, mental and emotion, emotional dissociation that like what even like I know in times of life that I could think back and I don't know I've been stressed until I'm coming out of stress and start to feel normal again. We don't like, so to have a marker that says, hey, this is telling me in no uncertain terms, you're not bouncing back right now. You're not ready. You're not ready to go into the next fight and flight environment because your autonomic nervous nervous system is not working optimally. It's hard. Yeah, we yeah. Do, because we just, we just go, we just like brush it off. And, and you know, like I remember saying to a guest, Earlier this year, you know, there are times where I would, I could lay down. I was, I was so exhausted. I'd lay down on my bed and I was like, oh my goodness, like, like every bone and muscle in my body. I was like, oh wow, so exhausted. But I had to come and do something and get a, a little edit on the podcast and drop. And the minute I sat in the seat I'm in now and got in front of my computer, that whole physical feeling disappeared. And I was like, oh, I wonder how long I've been this bone tired. And because I'm always getting, you know, just getting the job done, doing the work, I just, my my brain's like, well, it's not relevant because it doesn't mean anything, so we won't feel it. Mm. <laughs> and I and think comes, that's paramedics, you know. It is true. And and I think we're losing or we've lost or we never had it in the first place, the ability to consciously downregulate. Mm. And I didn't know what downregulation meant. I had no idea. I thought it was a, have another beer. But it's it's... <laughs> It's it's perfectly all right for us to upregulate. I mean, it's the stress response. We're built to upregulate. Mm. But as our health status gets worse, it, our ability to downregulate becomes impaired. We showed that one quite clearly. But to consciously downregulate, that's the key. And whether it's box breathing with centering, whether it's just general mindfulness, whether it's practicing gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, it, any of those things. And we have to figure out what, what works best. Um, that we need to put ourselves in a position where we go, I'm really stressed today. It's now time, now time to downregulate. Here we go. Mm, and, and away you go. And that's where I'm at right now, trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, figuring it out for the individual too. I did a three-part yeah. episode with Cam McDonald who runs, who's CEO of PH360, which is the epigenetics educator that I use to, to do my qualifications in. And so they have, in inverted commas, health types that dictate these six main types of biology that we talk about that dictates behavior and personality and all of the things. And so I did this three-part series with him on basically uh, what you, like hacks, biohacking yeah. or epigenetics. Yeah. So we looked at all of these things that now I've had the experts on the show for all of them to talk about the science behind them. So they're scientifically proven things. And I was like, all right, Cam, I want you to talk to me about them from the epigenetic standpoint, like cold water immersion. Talk to me about that for these six different types of biology. And we all respond differently. So we either have to physically do it differently or mentally do it differently when we do the thing. So it's understanding, you know, like you talked about that box breathing, we can give a task to someone but if the intention and the application and the and the processing and the understanding and all of the things don't come together for that particular person, well, they're not going to get the result. 
just another thing that makes it um, so complex to roll out and measure and monitor. So, yeah, go, so, so go you, Sandy. <laughs> you have got a big job ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's coloring a lot of my research right now. And we're, we're getting started to measure stress response in, in physicians and emergency room nurses. Mm. We've done some work with police. We've done some work with early childhood educators. We've done work with pharmacists. And all in that, remember, build a descriptive profile, then figure out what you, if you want intervention to be needed intervention, and then away you go. So I'll be, and then I've got PhD students in the area, master's students and head of head honors students all studying these things. And, and what has proven is we can build a methodology, right? It's taken me, I don't know, probably three years to say, if you want to study, you know, the, the, the effects of box breathing. These are all the things you have to do to make it so you can accurately measure whether there's an effect or not. Everything yeah. from sample size to, to to the way you collect it. Yeah. So there's a lot of talk these days about heart rate variability, and everybody's got a Garmin watch, and it'll it'll say something about it'll say something about HRV, but does it really? Is it a accurate? And B, does it make sense what it's reporting? Mm. I do all my work with uh, lead to monitoring. So the shirts will give you an ECG tracing, and that's what I use for HRV, mm-hmm. and clean the data and and then and analyze the data. So for me, it's I have to be uh, rock solid. I have a Garmin; it'll tell me something about HRV and it'll tell me I'm stressed or not stressed. I I view it with a grain of salt. If it if it brings your attention to the fact that you might be too upregulated, great. How much does it vary from the data you've collected? I'd like to know. <laughs> I'm sticking with lead two monitoring. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. have to. Uh, yeah. uh, having said that, the technologies of, you know, yours is measuring it using uh, what's called PPG or photoplacidomography, and it's shooting infrared through your through your wrist, and it's bouncing off the veins and arteries and coming back, and it says your heart rate is this much. And from the fact that we see a heart rate and we can kind of do a, I'm tracing. Your listeners can't see that. I'm tracing this waveform. It can yeah. approximate. It can invent or make up an ECG beat from yeah. that. Yeah, and right. then if you can do that, then they can go, well, it's heart rate variability must be this. So it's been, PPG is good. It's good in young fit people, not so much necessarily during exercise or peri-exercise. Uh, but things like Apple watches are coming on so strong with ECG monitoring from, or they're building it from the pleth uh, with massive data sets that are saying we're getting it. So I think it's going to be there. Um I have no issues with people with garments or auras or or mm. whoop or any of them. They're fine. No, no issue. For my research, I need I need to do a lead two tracing. And yeah. so I do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I I look at I look at my data on Garmin mainly for sleep and, and I've been really uh, yeah, focusing yeah. on that this year, but also with a grain of salt. So especially deep sleep. I don't rank very well with my deep sleep and with improving my sleep by an hour a night in the last three to four months, which has been amazing for me because I've often had trouble sleeping. My deep sleep remained the same, if not probably was even worse at times, which started to really bother me. So I, then I had to go internal and go, all right. So the fact that I'm now focusing, noticing this and focusing on it and it's bothering me is causing me more stress than the whole sleep issue. And really how accurate is the garment you need to park this or you're only going to cause yourself more stress and more damage <laughs> so yeah. it's 
you know, I think our relationship with technology when we've got our own gadgets and things is also something, you know, it's a good guide. It's a good, you know, like I can trust that I can look at the data of sleep and go, well, it's the same device and three months prior I was getting an average of yeah. this much total sleep and three months in later I'm getting this much. And so whatever inaccuracies were there before are yeah. still there. As long as it's the same. Is, yeah. yeah, and this is the trend. But, yeah, same thing. I, I, yeah, I don't look at the heart rate variability and all that with too much. Yeah, I think it does what it's supposed to do, but I'm telling you, it's getting better. They're getting better. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and, you, and you hit on a key point, and that is your stress level, your – if if um garmin gives you what's called rmssd if it gives you that number mm. uh you can't compare it to mine and you can't compare it to your neighbor you mm. can compare it to you yeah and that's and that's it's hard to you know if we're both running a race and we're at 100 i'm at 100 beats per minute at the end and you're at 60 that's pretty significantly different yeah. but your your hrv numbers the numbers are not really comparable to mine to anyone's we can group them but you got to be really careful. So we always do a baseline and then compare it to baseline yeah. for each for each individual and see and then compare how their self reports are. Are they are they telling us they're less anxious in these situations? Things like that. So the future is for me is pretty good. You know, I, I like to do this. I'm at the university level now, and but I I get out and around. I've been to um, to New Zealand to the Calm Under Pressure workshop that Dave Wood puts on, and. Uh, Folks in this area are really coming on well with science. You know, they're pop everything you get time, anytime you populate with good science, good evidence, uh, the, the participant, the consumer wins. So, and there's and there's great providers, as you've mentioned some already in Australia and worldwide. And uh, I try and find the, the the really good ones and the really good researchers and follow them. And see how it goes. And some of it I put in, you're right, I put into my own personal practice. I know it's time to downregulate. I know centering and being mindful and and uh, box breathing when needed. But I also journal, right? I, I write down my gratitudes every day. Yeah. I'm not, and there's some good evidence behind that to say your your mental health mood improves over a number of months positively with journaling. Yeah. yeah. Write down three things you're grateful for today. Yeah. So yeah, I love that's... That. Uh, yeah, it's, and I'm a scientist, I think, or was. <laughs> no, I, I'm a paramedic who happens to be doing scientific research, which is <laughs> pretty rare, pretty rare. And I'm yeah, not, quite sure, not quite sure how I ended up in this way, but um, yeah, my my crossroads to better health and longevity and understanding the human condition was probably 2012. And I just hit my wall, came to Australia, and just the last 10 years have been phenomenal. Absolutely mm. phenomenal for me. Yeah. So like, and that's me on my little soapbox and I'll get off it now. I love it. Uh, tell, tell us how we can, how can people, like, what do you want to promote? What do you want listeners to do? Where can they, can they reach out? Can they find you? Is there any, you know, anything you want to shout out about? Yeah. I don't know if you don't do show notes or anything like that. Um, I do do show notes. So I will have yeah. links to whatever you want. I'll put my my Griffith bio in there and I'll put my Griffith email, but I'm across a number of different projects in a number of different in a number of different settings. So not just necessarily oriented to the university. I love having these conversations. So I want to hear from people that that I get great research collaborations that just pop up because someone heard something. 
So always interested in collaborations. I'm not, I'm now not the pointy end. It's just got to be paramedics. It can be, well, it has been actually just about everybody under the sun. I think mm -hmm. I spent enough time, probably 10, almost 10 years with the Hexoskin product. So I'm really, really comfortable with, with um, data collection of physiologic measures in applied settings. So in a police car or, or in a fire truck or on the fire ground. Uh, and I think the potential is unlimited. People need to be concerned and understand or prick their ears up a little bit when we say the term health status and not go to sleep. We need to make it, the word's not sexy, but we need to make it that they go, oh, health status. To this, it means, to me, this is what it means. So that we can say, my, I just call it a report card. Mm. Today's report card on your body is this. Yeah. And if we wanted to go in a different direction, the nudge it, these are the things that we have to do. Some are yeah. short term, like you're like addressing your sleep issues. Some are longer term, like like reducing visceral, like reducing visceral fat, yeah. you know, organ fat. And that's yeah. that's that's exercise and diet and good recovery. And I'll always work health status into the conversation and try and get people's attention by saying, you know, if your health status is this and these things are happening, if you want to move it in this direction. Think about these things and and health status might even be that a constant state of low level anxiety that's yeah. that's a measure of health status diminished so let's let's move it the other way let's let's do some let's do some box breathing i mean yeah. it's physiology is physiology if you box breathe or kind of mindful breathe your physiology will change yeah i'm big on i'm massive on i always talk about intention recognizing yeah. intention. So like, obviously I'm big on the science around things, but one thing I've always kind of, when I've adopted things, I think the idea of intention feeds, feeds us as much as the thing. So, you know, when I first started mindfulness, which for me was like sitting down herding cats and I would think to myself for so long, I would think this, look, I'm not even doing this right. This isn't can't be calming me at all. This is is this is the science working? Is the science working? Is it? Am I doing this right for the the what I'm trying to achieve? Well, that was good. And then I just settled into going. You know, the intention that I'm sitting down for however long every day. That like every time I make a choice to intentionally do something to bring my nervous system down, which I do all the time now, even if it's laying on my bed for two minutes between tasks and taking three deep breaths, the intention itself I find powerful. So, And it gets me, it's like my get-out-of-jail card for if I'm doing it right or not. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's the key, is understanding that you can consciously or and unconsciously influence your mind and, your, and therefore your physiology mm. in a positive way. Yeah. And maybe that's the take-home, and that shifts health status and then you can work on other things too, relationships and, mm. and, you know, how happy you are in your job and all yeah. those kind of modern day angst yeah. uh, causing things. Well, your race, Sandy, I want to say thank you for reaching out to me. And I want to say thank you for the work you're doing because I'm, I'm really, really happy to hear it. And I've got a lot of first responder listeners. I've had quite a few first responder guests on the show. Um, and I'm an, an ambassador for the Code 9 Foundation, which is a foundation for first responders and for mental health and PTSD. So there's a lot of listeners that are going to get a lot of little gems out of this and um, and hopefully some collaborations. Hopefully you'll have some people reach out and 
you know, yeah, that's, message further. Especially that last space, that the uh, critical instance stress, PTSD, I really want to move towards that area of helping whichever way I can, you know, bring what I can. So yes, if there are folks out there with some interest, I'm I'm available. It was a real pleasure. I took a, a roll of the dice. It's a, you know, it's an unsolicited email, which you probably get a lot. So I'm really pleased that we, and we, the time went incredibly fast. I'll leave it open. Uh, if you're in the Gold Coast area, you can come and see how we work up here, meaning how we do our research. Mm. You be a guest, we'll throw a hexoskin on you. And I... yes, of course. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have other topics or at other times, then just let me know. Yeah. We might chat again. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sandy. Hey, everyone, get around it. Go check the show notes. Get on board. Um, go do some box breathing and maybe some burpees and maybe mm-hmm. get your BMI down and eat some kale and <laughs> we'll all live long and happy. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.